0: If you have your Bibles this morning, if you'll open to Ruth chapter 2. This is the second part of an unintentional two-part message. If you were here last week, we just, uh, <laughs> sometimes you bite off more than you can chew, and I did not have enough time to get through uh, all of Ruth chapter 2, so we're going to catch up and, and finish the last half of this, this great chapter this morning. Just a little bit of a, a review for us as we get back in Ruth chapter 2 this morning. Uh, the book of Ruth falls in the midst of what was probably one of the darkest times, if not the darkest time uh, in Israel's history. It was a time uh, known as the time of the Judges. The book in the, your Bible, right before the book of Ruth, if you flip like one page, you'll see the book of Judges. And that particular book chronicles that period of about 350, 400 years of Israel's history. The time of the judges began with the death of the great leader Joshua, who led the people into the promised land and led the conquest of the land that had been promised all the way back to Abraham in 2000 B.C. And it ended with the coming of the first kings of Israel. Uh, Saul and David and Solomon and those that would follow after them. So in between, in between Joshua and the kings was this time known as the Judges. And the best way that we can describe that time is the way the book of J- Judges describes that time. Judges twenty one twenty five says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. A day not unlike today. Everybody does what seems right in their own eyes. Whatever is good for you is good for you, if it, if it, even if it doesn't line up with the word of God. As whatever way you want to define your own morality, our culture says, as long as it doesn't seem to be harming anybody else, go for it. That was the day of the judges as well. Nothing new under the sun, as the Bible says. In the midst of that time, there was a, a man named Elimelech who lived in Bethlehem. And there was a famine in Bethlehem. Ironically, the name Bethlehem means house of bread. There was no bread in the house of bread. And Elimelech chose to take his family, his wife Naomi, his two sons, Malon and Kilion, and to leave Bethlehem, leave the promised land, and go to the land of Moab. Sounds like a fairly benign decision. In fact, maybe even a very positive decision in the sense that, in so doing, he was able to provide some food for his family And yet the Bible had said very clearly the word of God in the book of Deuteronomy had told the Israelites that they were not to seek the peace or the prosperity of the Moabites all the days of their lives. And So we've talked about how Elimelech was in sinful disobedience going against the word of God, taking his family to the land of Moab, and there they resided for much longer than they intended to. It says there in Ruth chapter 1 that they intended to go into sojourn in Moab, the idea being that there would be a, a short time there in which they would then return to Bethlehem, and yet the Bible records that they remained there for 10 long years. See, folks, sin always takes you farther than you wanted to go and keeps you longer than you wanted to stay. Ten years had passed. During that ten years, Elimelech dies. The two sons, Malon and Kilion, they marry Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth, and then they too die. So now Naomi, who came to Moab with a husband and two sons, now is left with two Moabite daughters-in-law who were just a constant reminder to her of the effects of her sinful choices. She was bitter towards God. And in her bitterness decided that she would now return to Bethlehem seeking once again to find food, hoping to be able to live out the rest of her sad days, whatever those might be. Orpah stays in Moab, Ruth goes with her to Bethlehem, and as they arrive in Bethlehem, Naomi says to the the townsfolk who are coming to greet her, don't call me Naomi anymore, I've got a new name now, call me Mara, which means... Bitterness. Call me bitterness, and she was the epitome of that in that particular moment. The following morning, Ruth decides to get up and to go out and to find some food for a pretty smart thing, considering they had no food and no resources. She say, it says in v- chapter 2, verse 1, that Ruth went out to glean. She says in verse 2, Let me go out to glean in the fields, to glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Ruth was relying upon the provision made in the Old Testament days that there was no welfare system. If you were poor and impoverished, what they did was, uh, as they would have harvest time as we've just had uh, in, in our area, they, as they would go through their fields and they would, they would reap the harvest, they were only permitted to go through those fields one time. They would go through the fields one time and then they must leave whatever they missed on the first pass-through. They would leave for those who were poor. They would also leave the corners of their fields unharvested for the poor. And this was the way that provision was made for the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, those who in that time and period were impoverished. And so Ruth is taking advantage of this, by faith, going out to glean. As she goes out, I love verse 3 here. We'll pick up right here verse 3. And she says, And so she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reaper's And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. I love that phrase because I I think the best way to translate it, she just so happened to show up in the field of Boaz. Almost like it's an accident, and yet we know that there was more going on here. She gleans among the fields. Boaz comes and meets her there, offers her uh, to continue to glean there. And then we come to lunchtime at that day. If you'll stand with me in honor of God's word, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Verse 14. And it says that mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, this is a great question, (laughs) Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, This man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. And so she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. And you can be seated. Father, I pray for us this morning that, like Ruth, we might rise up and go to glean In the fields of grace that you have prepared for us. That we might experience the hope that Ruth found. The love that Ruth found and the grace that Ruth found in your fields of grace. Thank you for your hand of providence, Lord, how you got us. And may we see clearly what you have for us in your word today. And may this choice morsel so be satisfying to us. In Jesus' name, amen. As we talked about last week, we see here in this chapter, just in an amazing way, uh, the hand of divine providence. I want to define that term for you in faces one you're not familiar with. Divine providence is the means by and through which God governs all things in the universe. So this is a a big picture term that we're talking about here. The doctrine of divine providence asserts that God is in complete control of all things. This doctrine stands in direct opposition to the idea that the universe is governed by chance or fate or what we might call coincidence. The purpose or goal of divine providence is this, to accomplish the will of God. I want you to think about the will of God for a moment this morning. How you perceive the will of God in your life. Many of us spend a, a large amount of our time pursuing, asking God, what is your will for this decision or for that decision? God, what would you have me to do here or there? How would you have me to, to spend my finances? What would you see, have me to do in raising my children? We, we seek God's hand in our lives at various points. And yet we see that it is God's hand that is working all things for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And we talked about last week how His purpose is to conform us to the image of Christ. This chapter, as we're looking at it, kind of follows the outline of 1 Corinthians 13, 13, where the Apostle Paul writes, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three but the greatest of these is love. And last week, we looked at the first and second paragraph, which were about faith, Ruth's faith to get up and to go out and to glean, even at risk to her own life. We looked at the word of hope as Boaz assures her and says, You're safe here with me. I want to provide for you. But it says, The greatest of these is love. Let's look at love this morning. An invitation accepted. Lunchtime comes, the workers are hungry, they go to sit down at the table just like any other day. But Boaz does something in that moment that while it doesn't seem astonishing to us, would have left jaws touching the floor in that moment. He invited Ruth. This foreign woman to come and sit at the table. Now for us, we go, well, what's the big deal with that? But again, remember what the book of Deuteronomy taught us last week, how they were not to seek the peace or the prosperity of the Moabites. There was not to be any intermingling with the Moabites because of a long history of bad episodes that occurred between the Israelites and the Moabites. And yet here is Boaz, this well-respected landowner, this man that others were looking up to. He is inviting this Moabite woman to come and to sit at the table with the rest of his workers. I can guarantee you that he was getting some strange looks in that moment. What did he just say? What? It's one thing. Isn't it enough that he's invited this woman to come and to glean in our field? And now he is inviting her to come and sit at our table? I'm sure there was a moment there where folks wondered if Boaz was a little off his rocker. But he doesn't just stop there. It's not just that he invites her to the table, but three key things take place in this paragraph that each one of them would have been astounding to those who were present. You see, she was summoned and served and satisfied by the master of the table. He invites her to come, and then he does something even more shocking. He is the one that serves her her food. Look what it says there. So she sat beside the reapers, and he, we could easily pass over this phrase, but he passed to her roasted grain. He was the one that served her. And served her not just some little snack just to to curb her hunger in that moment. What does it say there? He fed her until she was satisfied until she was full and had more remaining on her plate. And I can kind of picture Ruth in that moment taking the last morsels on her plate and shoving them in her pockets as she walks away from that table to go back and to glean. She was summoned, served, and satisfied by the master of the table. Throughout these chapters, Boaz represents not just Ruth's Redeemer, he represents our Redeemer. And our Redeemer invites us to come to His table and to sit down with Him, which is shocking because we are sinners that should be separated from Him. But He invites us to come. Not only to come and sit down with Him, but then He does something even more shocking when He is the one who serves us. At the very least, we should be the ones serving Him. Perhaps he should be saying to us, come sit at my table and you can serve me. But then in that tender moment, he is the one who serves us. And not just serves us a little bit, but serves us until we are satisfied and have some left over, as we'll see in just a few minutes. And so I'd ask you today, as you think about the table of the Lord, at whose table are you feasting? I think there are many tables we could be invited to in this world. The tables of this world promise a satisfaction that they will not fulfill. But the Lord's table, when he invites you to fellowship with him, that's really what the table represents is fellowship with the Lord. In those days, to sit down with someone at their table was no small thing. For someone to invite you to their table was an expression of this. I desire a relationship, an intimate relationship with you. It was no small thing for her to be invited to the table that day. And it's no small thing for us to be invited to the table of the Lord. He invites you to come to dwell with him, to abide with him. And then he serves you. I think about that night. The night on which Jesus was betrayed, the night before he was to go to the cross. On a night when it would have seemed the best thing for him to be served by his disciples, but instead he removed his robe and wrapped around himself a towel. And took out the wash basin, that which was reserved for the lowliest of servants. And he began to wash his disciples' nasty, stinky, dirty feet. sign of his love a sign that he who was the greatest would take the place of the least he who was the master became the servant and yes it was to set before us an example we know that we see that passage and we go yeah jesus was setting for us an example that we would serve others in the same way that he served his disciples and that's true but let us not forget who he was The master of the table was taking the place of a servant, just as Boaz did here in Ruth chapter 2. And all around, jaws were hitting the floor. And the Lord Jesus has an invitation for you as well. He makes the invitation in Isaiah chapter 55. I love this particular verse. He says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. For us to come to the Lord's table, we must recognize this that we are poor beggars coming before a king. If we think we're anything else, we're missing the picture of the gospel. If you think that there is something inherent in you that gives you a right to come to his table and to enjoy fellowship with him, you're missing it. If you think that your nationality gives you access to him, you're missing it. If you think that your educational status or, or the amount of money you make in a year or how good you've been at church attendance or how many scriptures you've memorized or how many times that you've shared the gospel with others, if you think any of those things qualify you to come to the table, you've missed it. And if you look at this and go, well, Ruth worked really hard, so she deserved to come to lunch that day. You're really missing it. You're missing the grace that was being shown here. That she was being given that which she could never earn, would never deserve. And so are we. In the last paragraph there, in the last paragraph of chapter 2, we see this grace. We see an abundance is supplied to her. Look at verse 17. And so there after that mealtime, she gleaned in the field until evening. When the sun went down, they would stop, and then they would go, and they would beat out the the grain in order to remove the chaff that they would have, that which they could cook with. She beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. That means nothing. How many of you know what an ephah is? I didn't either, by the way, (laughs) in studying this. I had no clue. We read these things and go, okay, that sounds nice, an ephah of barley, whatever that means. Let me give you a picture, though, to show you really what this amounts to. In those days, it was known that for a soldier, for a soldier, they would have a daily ration of grain. And it often was barley, just as Ruth is is, uh, being given here. They would have a daily ration of barley, and a soldier's ration was about one liter of barley. That's the size of this bottle here. That was a soldier's ration. And so as Ruth is going into the field to glean that day, what we need to understand in that moment is this. At the best that she could hope for, as she went out to glean, is that perhaps by some chance, someone might, remember she says, someone might show me favor, might show me grace, might express that Old Testament Hebrew word hesed, the loving kindness of God might be expressed through someone to me. Perhaps the best that she could hope for was that someone would allow her to glean enough for the day she might be able to walk away with a liter of barley, enough to feed her and Naomi for the evening meal, perhaps just enough left over for breakfast the next day and then back out into the fields again. Because that was the life of these who were destitute in that day. It was hand to mouth, day by day. That prayer, Lord, give us our daily bread. Well, that's a New Testament prayer, it was very much an Old Testament concept for folks like Naomi and Ruth. Just enough for today, God. Just enough, just let me go out and we get just enough for today, God. And that'll be enough, I'll be satisfied with that. Sometimes I think we just set our sights a little bit too low, though. We think about the supply of our God. And I think sometimes when we come before God in, in our prayers, when we're pleading with God for a situation in our life, when something is, is in need that we have in our life, we come before God and we, and we kind of have this in mind. God, just, just give me just enough for today. And, and it sounds really noble. It sounds really noble that, that we're, and I think there is a place there where we are dependent upon God. We are depending upon His grace and His favor, but I think sometimes our sights are just set too low. Because you see, when Ruth walked away that day from the fields of grace, when she walked away from the fields of Boaz that day, she walked away with an ephah of barley, which is quite a bit more than this. In fact, depending on who you ask, historians will say that an ephah. It was about this much. 20 to 30 liters of barley. Enough to feed Ruth and Naomi for several weeks. You see, it was on day one that she was given enough to last for two weeks or more. Just take that in for a moment. And I'd ask you today, as, as you think about your relationship with God, you think about your Redeemer, when you come to His table, when you come into His field, when you come to abide with Him, and you come asking, and I pray that you come asking, because Jesus said that a lot of times the reason you have not is because you ask not. And when you ask, you oftentimes ask with the wrong motives. But if you get those things right, the asking and the motivation for asking, then you come before the Lord and you ask of Him, what do you expect? Is this what you come expecting? God, just enough to get me by. That's really all I'm asking. See, here's the problem. When this is all we expect, what it really means is this. We don't think very much of our provider. God, just enough to get me by. That's all I'm asking. When what he wants to send us away with is so much more see the picture here is so powerful because in that moment, what she began to understand as she goes home to Naomi is that this man Boaz, he was more than just a provider for her, but he was also going to be her redeemer. Let's look at those last few verses there. I want you to see it. And so Ruth comes home with this huge load, probably 50 to 60 pounds of barley. How she even carried it, it seems like quite a miracle to me. She comes home with this huge load, and Naomi asks the appropriate question, where did you work today? Again, Naomi is hopeful that she'll come home with anything. This would have been what they would have expected, and she comes home bearing this giant load, and Naomi asks the right question, "Where did you work today?" And I love how Ruth stretches it out. You notice even, even in the Hebrew there, uh, she stretches out till she, she gives the name at the very end. Where did you glean today? So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked. She lays out the story of the day, and then she leaves to the very end. The man's name with whom I worked, and I can't imagine, but that she just paused for a minute. The man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. And yet, Ruth didn't know who Boaz was in that moment. Naomi had to fill in the blanks. You'll notice Naomi's bitterness turns to a blessing right there in verse 20. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Whose kindness is is she talking about here? The reference to kindness there is not to Boaz." It refers to the kindness of the Lord. Remember, this is the same woman who just yesterday, and perhaps even the morning of, was so racked with bitterness in her life that she said, the Lord's hand has gone out against me. He has dealt bitterly with me. He has judged me and witnessed against me, she said. And therefore, I am bitter. In that moment of God's provision, he turned her bitterness into blessing. Blessed be the Lord, she says, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. The Hebrew word behind that word redeemer there is the word goel. And a goel was a technical term that referred back to the Levitical law that said that if a woman was left without a husband, if she was a widow and she had no one else, no sons to take care of her, then the provision was made for the goel, that another relative of hers could come and could marry that woman and provide for her and produce descendants for the man who had passed away. Full provision was made for that family to be Continuing on, she said to Ruth in that moment, your provider is also your potential redeemer. doesn't mean a lot to us because we don't know what it's like to live where Ruth lived. To be in destitution, hoping that we'll at least have enough bread for this day, maybe a little for the next. We don't know what it's like to be completely without family as she was, or at least many, most of us don't. We, don't. we don't know what it's like to be so alone in that moment. And yet we see here in this chapter, God providing her not just with food. He is beginning to prepare her, to provide her with family as well. To meet not just the needs of her stomach, but the need of her heart. And our provider has also become Our redeemer. The God who gives us life and breath and every good thing also desires an intimate relationship with us. This is the beautiful mystery of the gospel. Would it not have been enough for him to have been a provider for us? And yet he chose in his infinite wisdom and his great love to desire an intimate relationship with us. Come sit at my table but even more than that, to enter into what we will see, this marriage-type covenant comes about in this book and in our lives as well. And so we see here, at the end of this chapter, there is this provision that's being made. The Redeemer has come. Still more of the story. We'll get to it next week. But for now, i want to leave you with John 10.10. 10. John 10.10, 10, Jesus spoke these words, and he said, The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. Naomi and Ruth had experienced that. The thief had come and stolen away their husbands. The thief had come and had killed their joy. The thief had come and destroyed their entire livelihood, and yet then the Redeemer came to bring them life in abundance. And this is what he desires for us as well, that we would know that overflowing abundance. But again, so many times we come before the Lord and we ask God, just give me a little bit. Just a little bit of your spirit It will be enough for me. Just a, just a little bit of your truth, God. You know, just, just answer these few little prayer requests, God. And we forget that we're coming before the king. And he says, come boldly before my throne of grace with what? Confidence, that's what he says. With confidence, not with fear. Come before my throne of grace with confidence that you may find mercy and grace to help you in your time of need. And his desire is not just to supply a little for us, but to give to us in abundance. Why? Because he loves us. Because he loves us. You remember Jesus was teaching one day on a hillside and he encountered a hungry crowd it had been a long day of teaching and they had been listening listening well until like what happens in this service most sundays it's amazing what happens at eleven fifty-nine. i can watch your eyes glaze over because your bellies are rumbling and once the bellies start rumbling the ears go Ooh, i'm done and some of you are all are ever so faithful to walk out at 1201 i'm kind of making light of that and yet Jesus was experiencing the same thing. And all they had on hand was a little boy's lunch. The disciples said, Send him away. Send him, send him to other places to find food. We don't have enough here. But you know what Jesus did? He began to divide out that little boy's lunch, and somehow, according to the provision and grace and miraculous working of God, it fed those 5,000 men, plus women and children, probably over 10,000 in attendance that day. It fed them till they were, you remember the word? Satisfied. And they had 12 basketfuls left over. Why the show? Because in the show, we see the superabundant grace of God. The love of God shows us that He desires not just to give us a little bit, but to provide for us in abundance. And what is that provision? I'll leave you with this. The greatest provision He could give you is of himself. You see, in order for you to enter into his fields of grace, a price had to be paid. A price had to be paid at that old cross. Where the perfect Son of God, who knew no sin of his own, took all of our sin upon himself. So that we could not just be forgiven But that he could go beyond that and consider us righteous, completely justified before him. The price was paid for you that you could enter in freely. All your works are nothing. Again, Ruth was not invited to the table that day because she was a hard worker. At the end of your days, the Lord will not invite you to His table because you tried really hard to be good. You will only come to that table because of His grace and trusting by faith in the provision made for you. And I'll leave you with Ephesians chapter 3. This be our prayer today. Now to him who is able. Is your God able? Is your God able to supply? Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Sometimes we're, we're just too small in our asking, too small in our thinking. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. According to the power at work within us, whose power? It's not yours, by the way. If it's your power, it's not going to amount to anything. According to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, and all God's people said, Amen. Let us seek the Lord in that abundance. Let's have a big faith that goes out into these fields of grace known as Breckenridge County. Let's seek to take to the lost and dying world, a word that God wants not just to provide for you for the day, but He wants to provide for you for eternity. He wants to superabound in your life. He wants to give you that which you thought you could never have. He doesn't want to just supply your belly, but He wants to supply your heart. He wants to fill you up to overflow. This is our God. But Sometimes I fear in my own life, and perhaps in yours as well, Sometimes our God is just too small. As we come to the close of our service today, if you could bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment, I want to take just a few minutes of silence. Just use your God-given imagination for a minute. Can you picture in your mind that beautiful barley field? Golden at time of harvest. Those stalks gently swaying in the breeze. And the master of the field, the one who owns it all, is inviting you to come and to glean in his field. And you don't know what to expect in that moment. Perhaps you'll get just enough for the day. Perhaps maybe at some point his his favor will turn sour and he'll kick you out of the field altogether. But for the moment you see his grace inviting you to come in. And so you work hard and you glean all that you can. You gather up all that you can and then the midday meal comes and he does the unthinkable. He invites you to come and to sit down with him at his table. And you know in every way the word could be said that you do not belong there. And yet you are welcome because He gave you the invitation. No one else can cast you out. And He chooses not to. And then He does the unthinkable. When He becomes a servant unto you, Passes the food to you. Passes the wine to you. And encourages you to eat up. Eat up and be satisfied. Can you picture that table? In your God-given imagination, can you see what it would be for you To leave the fields of grace that day with a superabundant supply. More than you could have ever dreamed. Is your God that big? That's my question for you today. Is your God that big? Or is he too small to save? Too small to deliver? Too small to provide? Too small to redeem? I want you to know as you're picturing that field and that table today, I want you to know this. That the God of this Bible, the one true and living God, He is that Redeemer who invites you to come and to dwell and to be satisfied and to abound in life abundant all because He Himself paid the price for you to enter in. Father God, we ask today, we ask that You might draw us into those fields of grace. Lord, so often from our perspective it just seems like it just so happened that way and yet when we look back we can see the hand of God at work. And Lord, would you help us to see what it means for us to be invited to your table to enjoy fellowship with you paid for by your sacrifice at the cross. And Lord, may our thanksgiving abound. May our response be, Blessed be the Lord who has shown us grace. It is your favor we need more than any other. And we plead for it in these moments. As beggars before the King we come knowing that those who enter in by faith will not be turned away. Help us to put our faith fully in Jesus. To trust in your grace. To see your provision and to rejoice in you. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to sing a song about the depth of the Father's love for us. As we sing, we invite you to respond this morning as the Lord leads you.